Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. How do we address conflictual situations or challenging interpersonal events in the most skillful way? I'm going to just start out this topic by reeling us back a little bit and just first uh, note that most adult communication is what's called left brain to left brain, which means we use language to communicate our experience, our ideas, our beliefs, our frustrations. Today, people become more and more reliant in terms of our interpersonal connections by using texts, posts, or emails, and all of these forms of interpersonal uh, interactions are what's known as asynchronous, which means you're not actually there with the person. You're not actually seeing their uh, nonverbal cues, their facial expressions, their tone of voice. You're not uh, seeing their gestures, their body language. You're not really getting any kind of interaction on all the vitally important information that's actually communicated, uh, often non-consciously in an interaction. Um, if we are, and when we're present with another person, we're very often in a place where we don't even really bother to fully attend to what somebody's conveying. To fully attend, we'll talk about what that means, but essentially the very basic is the ability to pay attention, to literally look at and regard somebody's facial expressions and so forth, and to absorb what's being signaled to you Many people, of course, by adult life, are so uh, have such a predilection towards f focusing entirely on the ideas communicated in words that when somebody else is speaking, our eyes drift away and we engage in uh, unskillful behavior like such as planning what we're going to say or what we what we have to do next or whatever. So we're not even really fully present, we live in a very, by adult life, a very disembodied type of bonding where we're very often completely unaware of the, of the physiological states we're in when we're with someone or even paying any degree of attention to their affects, their emotional states. So this is deeply unfortunate because human beings are an emotionally co-regulating species, we, our nervous systems don't down-regulate after a very difficult event back to a lastingly homeostasis, you know, state of um, ventral parasympathetic where you're relaxed, your heart rate goes down to below 72 beats per minute, you can listen openly, and you can essentially bond in a way that allows your uh, limbic structures to, to autonomically sync with another human being. Um, all of that is founded on being present with another human being and being aware of and attuned to the nonverbal cues that are being sent to you. And if we are incre increasingly in our life reliant on texts, we are depriving ourselves of the absolute vital uh, collaborative, mutual experience of um, what human beings thrive on for well-being. It's the very food that allows us as a species to um, return to a healthy state of high functioning where we're not secreting cortisol, extremely damaging stress hormone, and where we can enact our highest sense of self, which always requires us being open, available, interested, attuned, 
and present for somebody without being lost in thought, without carrying a second or a, a, an agenda in our mind, without, without focusing entirely on just the words that are being communicated. Uh, studies show that if people are just relying on text, not only do we not actually downregulate our emotions after a, a difficult experience, like for instance, you get bad news or, or scary news and you want to process that, if you instead just reach someone with texting, you actually won't. Your nervous system autonomically will not downregulate to a state of soothing and, and uh, you might just for a moment, release some uh, dopamine, but you won't actually raise your serotonin levels. And that's what will help you create, a, a, once again, a state of safety and a state of, I'm okay. Um, safety cues are entirely conveyed non-verbally. That's what we know from the work of Shore, who calls all human interactions that are meaningful right brain to right brain, which means they're not about things we say, they're not about ideas, they're about all of the nonverbal cues that we signal to, one each other, to each other when we're sad. Our bodies, our tone of voice, our gestures, our very state of being conveys our affect. And when we're with someone and they mirror back in some way that they get it, there's a significant shift autonomically in our state of being. Uh, I'll read you, um, Linda Graham, a famous clinical psychologist in her book writes, when another person is available, present, emotionally attuned, that means they're paying attention and their emotions are in some way, uh, uh, you know, not caught up in their own stuff. And she goes on to say, empathetically resonant, which means they're mirroring back what you're feeling. Uh, and reflective, again, that's the same thing. She's saying the same thing three times. <laughs> Emotionally attuned, empathetically resonant, and reflective are all exactly the same thing clinically. So I guess she's driving the point home. But uh, uh, our inner, when then in by reciprocally communicating, that's the fourth time she said the same thing, by reciprocally communicating in tones, gestures, facial expressions, as well as words, it regulates each other's affects soothes distress and amplifies joy. So essentially all the things that we're yearning for to make us feel safe and to allow us to become fully open to life and explore and to, um, to process deeply painful or positive events requires being present, being paying attention, being open and essentially paying attention, fully witnessing another person's affect state and being empathetically resonant in a way that you can reflect back what they're feeling. So if it doesn't happen, there's two forms of, of interactions that cause conflict and cause stress in a relationship. One set is when there's a constant degree of criticism. We'll talk about the, the three factors of it, but criticism, attack, uh, any form of communication that uh, suggests that somebody is wrong or uh, there's something essentially broken about their core sense of self will activate the other person's sympathetic nervous system and will create a defended state where they will become less capable of feeling safe and they will then become more prone towards either extremely defensive or aggressive remarks, their fight flight, state of their nervous system will be triggered. And that's what can happen with couples over a long time where there's this history of uh, snide comments, rejecting comments, critical comments, and so forth, is that over time, if there's not significant processing or what's called repair, the both people will descend into a, a lack of trust, to a guarded, uh, aggressive state and uh, unconsciously they'll both be punishing each other. Um, the second kind of rupture that can occur in relationships is when somebody gives up. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but essentially that's associated not with the sympathetic nervous system, but with the old ancient shutdown system, which is called the 
dorsal parasympathetic. That's when you faint, you disconnect, you become depressed, you give up, you become resigned, you lose interest, you check out of the situation. And that's, so there's, there's the main result is when we don't have this really positive, open, regarding, uh, interpersonal, soothing bonds, then we either become hypervigilant and fight flight, or we shut down, give up, and become essentially disengaged, not present, and that's essentially an ancient state of hypovigilance and lack of any mobilization and so forth. So Gottman, who is one of the John Gottman of the Gottman Institute, one of the great couples um, psychologists, did studies, and um, he noted that happy couples respond to their partner's bids for attention eighty percent of the time. That's four out of five times. Now you might say, "What's bid for attention?" It's not just when somebody says, "Hey, you, I want to talk about my day." A bid for attention is any audible remark that in some way is, uh, could be construed as an attempt to attract another person's attention. So it could simply be you're reading something and you might not even be aware that you're making a bid for attention, but you're reading something and you go, hmm, oh, aloud. <laughs> Assuming you wouldn't do that in uh, an environment where you're alone, <laughs> you know, if you do any kind of audible remark that you would not do when you're alone, then that's a bid for attention. You might not even be aware of it, but you are unconsciously summoning uh, the presence of another and the core drive, as attachment theorists call, is to be seen in the eye of the other. That's what makes human beings high functioning, to be seen in the eye of another human being. So when we make audible remarks or any kind of sort of loud demonstrative gestures that we wouldn't make when we're entirely alone, when we're around another person, we are, it's a bid for attention. And Gottman showed that uh, happy couples will respond four out of five times. We'll go, what? What's going on? Is everything okay? How are you doing? Oh, what are you reading? Something like that four out of five times. Couples that are unhappy will be 20 times less likely. So there's a significant, so it might be one out of 20 times they will respond. Um, he also did a study with uh, newlyweds. And uh, God, I can't imagine doing that. That would be such a fucked up study. They you know, <laughs> have to put up with that. Uh, but uh, he found that uh, happy, couples that remain married after six years, when their partner would speak, their, they, the individual would turn towards their partner 86% of the time. Okay, so somebody says something to you, don't just go, oh, that's interesting, <laughs> you know, still on the, you know, the laptop or the iPad, or uh, I'm making what looks like a newspaper, but nobody does that anymore, <laughs> so, you know, I should have been like, I don't know, I don't know what you do in front of a laptop. I do know, but you can't signal that graphically. <laughs> so, um, anyway, uh, uh, unhappy couples that wind up getting divorced only return towards their partners, literally physically reorient and pay attention 33% of the time. So you can see that there is a significant variation and um, between the amount of bids for attention. So in Gottman's theory of relational security is entirely based upon responding to bids for attention, how often you do that. Now that's not the only theory. We'll talk a little bit about some other theories in communication and how to build a trusting, robust relationship, but that's one view. One thing we do know is that in, from childhood, in healthy relationships, there is a natural ongoing flow of what's called rupture and repair. What's that? Rupture is when there's a discordant moment when you don't pay attention, when you're lost in thought, when you, somebody's talking to you and you are not emotionally attentive or you get pulled away by a random thought or a memory of something during your day. And that doesn't have a lasting effect if there's what's called repair. When somebody goes, snaps out of it 
and asks a question or says, I'm sorry, I was just caught up in something. Can you repeat that? Or does something to repair the attunement where there's now once again this felt sense of I care about what you're saying and yet that's expressed. When that happens, uh, healthy couple dynamics in both parent and child and partner and partner are likely to ensue. In unhealthy relationships, there's no repair. The repair is after the rupture, there's essentially ruptures are disregarded. They're not in any way thought of as being something that's worthy of an attempt to re-engage and to reconnect with. So you can have times when we get lost in thought or when we disconnect or when we are not paying attention for any number of reasons. But so long as we then return and express curiosity or, or actively engage a reconnection, that maintains a healthy partnership. So now you, might, you might say, well, Josh, if in your mind you would say something like, well, Josh, you would say, well, sometimes I do get lost in thought, but so what? No, the other person doesn't know that. Not true. You might think that while we're lost in thought, it still looks to the other human being like we are paying attention. And actually to their left brain, because their left brain is just paying attention to the words and whether you're re responding to the words, that might be true. But their right hemisphere, which is largely unconscious, but creates all of their feeling states and their emotional sense of security, does not miss anything. It's the faster circuits of the brain. It's the more efficient. And every time somebody starts to get lost in mind wandering, your right hemisphere literally will create an autonomic shift. You'll get it. So it's called neuroception. Unconsciously, we are all constantly processing whether somebody is paying attention to us. And the great um, neurologist Stephen Porges talks about how, you know, uh, and I think also it was uh, Deb Dana, one of his clinical psychologists, talk about how you go on a date when you meet somebody and they smile and they listen to you, then your nervous system will stay in homeostasis, the highest, most healthy state. But then if you're talking and you even notice that slightly they're looking at their phone or looking away or that their eyes are not moving and reconnecting with you at certain salient points of the dialogue, your right hemisphere will switch you and pre the amygdala will switch you into a state of sympathetic. And then if the worst thing happens, you go to the bathroom, you come back and that person's gone. <laughs> wow. Then you're down in the complete, you know, dissociative collapse state. So we are all behind the, the, beneath the veil of consciousness, we are all constantly evaluating the level of connection we have with another human being. So mindful communication addresses all of this. Um, it started some 2,500 years ago uh, in the core tenets of the Dharma. There's something called the Eightfold Path, which is the foundations of what the Buddha considered to be skillful approach to life. And the third factor, if I can remember correctly, I'd never memorized the order of them, I just know what they are. But the third factor is right speech. And right speech originally in the Dharma was um, speaking truthfully, speaking usefully, and speaking at the right time. Now that was the very basic foundation of what right speech was. But then there's additional rules in the renunciates codes of Vinaya, where the Buddha talks about uh, essentially how monks should interact with each other. And he had these very strict rules that monks should not interrupt, cut off, or in any way assert opinions or beliefs while another human being is speaking, that they should work on understanding the underlying emotional states of the person that they're engaging with. He called them the, the, uh, the five clinging factors. But anyway, the point was to be fully present. Now, over the course of Buddhist 
growth in the West where it was infused with therapeutic perspectives. A lot of important uh, contemporary Buddhist teachers now have done a lot of work on uh, creating a, an agenda or a codified uh, language around what is mindfulness communication. Mindfulness, if you're wondering, is simply the ability to remember to become aware of your internal experience and to become aware in a, with a focus on what's happening in your body, your feelings, and your moods. Not to become aware of your thoughts, you already are most of the time. So mindfulness is this continual uh, attention to our underlying state and to the underlying states of the people we're with. So it's an injunction not to focus so much on language, but to focus on states of emotions, feelings, and body states. So in the work of people like Gregory Kramer, famous Buddhist, uh, who works in uh, insight dialogue and mindful schools and uh, teachers like Tara Brock and Ajahn Suchito and Oren Sofer and many others, countless others, and uh, insight med meditation circles and outside of it. Uh, there's become a sort of general consensus on what mindfulness and communication looks like, and it's eerily similar to the types of communications that um, couples therapists, extremely important couples therapists, call from. In fact, I would say in terms of the fundamental principles are in fact identical. So when uh, there's this perfect alignment on contemporary therapeutic modalities and early and contemporary Buddhist practice, it's pretty safe to conclude it's a good idea. <laughs> so I'm going to review what they are. Um, these are the steps of, of how to engage with someone in a relationship where there's conflict or tension, or simply when you want to take the level of bonding to a greater level of intimacy. So these are really important conversations. Noting that these steps are not going to be things you do every day. Because sometimes there's just mundane, functional conversations where you talk about, what do you want to for dinner? You know, what movie do you want to see? You know, do you want to go out? Do you want to see? I mean, that's, that's all fine. If we pretend that every single communication has to have this level of integrity and skillfulness and self-awareness, we'd be fooling ourselves. But these are communications or events where you really want to repair a dynamic, okay? So the first step is to pause and settle. Pause means to stop the momentum of life, the busyness, the momentum of life or the busyness is that feeling I have to get somewhere. I have to, okay, right now it's between 7 and 8.15, so I'm at Dharma Punks, and then after that I've got to go to Whole Foods, I've got to pick up my food, then I've got to get on the subway, then I've got to go home, then I've got to cook the food, then I've got to eat the food, then I've got to watch two hours of Netflix, then I've got to fall asleep, then I've got to get wake up, and then I've got to go to work again, or then I've got to... Blah, blah, blah. So that's this unending sense that we are in this transitional period of time where we're constantly moving to the next period, to the next. And when we're in that kind of emotional framework, the body is never fully relaxed. Our breath fails to go, our heart rate doesn't go down to really like the deep settled states of like 64 beats per minute or less, where there's a, an underlying impatience, an underlying sense of I've got to get this conversation done. I've got to get through this conversation. I've got, we're on a clock here, you know, or we've got to move through this agenda. We, to have an intimate healing conversation, we have to be willing to uh, turn towards it without any other agenda, without any other sense that I have to be somewhere else I have to go somewhere else, that this is something I have to fit into a chunk of time. So it's a real commitment. It's where we essentially are saying to the person we're talking with that you are equally, if not more important than anything else I might be attending to. Um, it also means, pausing and settle means 
take disconnecting from our thoughts and uh, the entire underlying agenda and taking a moment to scan and survey the body in a mindful regime of becoming aware of first the breath and soothing the breath, extending the out breaths to down regulate your nervous system, to open up the chest, soften your belly, to do all the things of self-soothing that allow you to fully come to a stop so that you can attend at this very moment to an important experience. So stopping and settling takes us out of mobilization state and puts us into social engage. And if we just try to have an important conversation where our body is still in a heightened mobilization state, you will not convey patience, interest, curiosity, um, and you will not be emotionally resonant, as Linda Graham said in four different ways, you know. You know, empathetically resonant or emotionally connected and so forth. So that's the first step. The second step is to listen, and it's really important if you are engaging the conversation to invite the other person to speak first about what's going on or anything that they want to get off their chest. It's important that while you listen, that you fully attend and that you, we make a commitment when we're engaging with somebody to not have any other agenda, to not have any thoughts, and to not ever prepare what we're going to say. Now this is difficult when there's tension in a relationship because very often people will be saying things that we find to be completely untrue or insane or I was there, wait, that's not what happened at all, that's not what I said, did, or you've got it entirely wrong. And when we start to have this kind of internal reactivity, then it's very, very difficult to create a safe, open, and healing dialogue. So it's important to not only not respond, but to not plan how we're going to respond. And to, if you start to feel a sense of outrage, to self-soothe. Once again, becoming aware of the part of your body that's become activated and down-regulating it. Now, there's four different kinds of ways we can respond. First, and I'm going to talk about it from different perspectives, but the first, the four unskillful ways Gottman talks a lot about, he calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And in his views, these are the four ways that people respond to bids for attention in an unskillful way that damages if not destroys the integrity of a relationship. So we'll go over them. The first is to respond with criticism. I can't believe you. How could you possibly think that? What's the matter with you? Are you insane? Why are you talking about this? So any kind of criticism essentially is an attack on the person we're with, not an attack uh, or a attack to behaviors, it's actually an attack on the person we're with. It's basically a message saying that there's something the matter with you. So any form of criticism in conversations, whereas it can feel protective and it can help us feel less vulnerable, but ultimately it will destroy the safety and the emotional uh, resonance of the conversation. The antidote to removing any sense of crit criticism and to restore a healthy uh, dialectic is to employ I feel words when it's our time to speak. I feel words always conveys one, that everything we experience, of course, has a level of uh, subjectivity to it. We can't, when we say I feel, we're immediately undercutting the objectivity or truth or factual, well, factuality claims. So immediately we're making somebody else feel less attacked, but we can still get across the same points, which is this doesn't make me feel safe because what you're expressing is something that I feel or from my own experience was, I felt entirely different than what you're reporting. Um, two, the most damaging of the forms of interpersonal communication is contempt. Contempt is largely not signaled through words, it's signaled through 
Body language, eye rolling, that's a serious no-no. Uh, exasperated sighs, grunts, uh, you know, any kind of, any kind of expression of disgust is uh, deeply, uh, it expresses a superiority that you are, your core self is damaged and I'm disgusted by your expression. Um, the anecdote of any contempt, especially if you've involuntarily released or done something that physiologically expresses uh, open disdain for what somebody is expressing is to in some way acknowledge another person's efforts. Well, I'm glad that you put this to words. I'm glad that we're having this conversation. I'm glad that you're willing to talk with me about it. Even though you might think that everything that they've said is completely crazy, if you want to in some way, and hopefully the agenda is that you want to in some way repair or at least address and turn a, a damaged relationship in a positive direction, then validating another person's efforts is really important. The third toxic response is defensiveness. Defensiveness is essentially self-protection expressed in an extremely self-righteous way. So it's, I don't know what the fuck, I didn't do that, I never said that. I The chances are if someone is in any way angry or disappointed with us, then in some small way, we have a role in it. It's just a fact. I have a, when people are angry with me, I have a role in it. It doesn't mean it's the biggest role or that it's that I'm the only person who's caused some kind of uh, disappointing exchange, but it means that I have some role in it. And to be defended um, in any way, to explain or defend ourselves rather than to accept our role, even if we need to mitigate what our role is. Somebody might exaggerate our role, but it's important to uh, accept that we have some role and to acknowledge that. Now, it can feel very vulnerable when we're the only person accepting and the other person is just angry and they're not accepting the fact that they have a significant role as well. But in terms of adult emotional health and well-being, the person who can accept a role and not be so constantly defended will be the healthier person. So it might feel vulnerable, but if you can at least acknowledge a role and the other person can't, you will wind up in the long term a far better adjusted human being. Uh, the anecdote is to accept responsibility for our, any part of the conflict. In doing that, you'll also create such a greater degree of safety. Now these first three um, kinds of responding to bids for attention, criticism, contempt, and defensiveness all activate the other person's sympathetic nervous system. It triggers them into fight flight. They'll become more aggressive, more defended. They'll be less likely to hear anything that you offer. So it's really important to simply practice waiting, not interrupting it by any means, just to be, to listen, and we'll talk about how to start responding in a, in a moment. Uh, the fourth unskillful way is what's called withdrawal. So the first three were activating your sympathetic mobilization state. This fourth essentially deactivates your attachment system entirely and puts you into a completely, I give up, um, and you'll signal that. I just give up, I don't care what you're saying, I just don't believe in any of this. And it's, of course, this is the most disastrous state to signal that there's no, you no longer believe there's any point in engaging. If you find yourself in a state of withdrawal where you're just, you feel physiologically that you're no longer present, that you no longer could give a shit what the other person is saying, it's really important to say, okay, I need to take a break to walk away, spend some time down-regulating, get back into a place where we can remember the larger picture 
in the dynamic and then return. Never simply stay present, con but conveying complete disengagement or withdrawal. That's so damaging to a relationship. Now, in terms of, there's other theories about how to respond. Verbally, Herval Hendricks, the founder of Imago Therapy, that's another form of the most dominant couples therapists talk about the most important factor, he says, in healthy couples is the ability to mirror back what you've heard. So while Gottman says it's responding to bids for attention by reorienting your body, paying attention, drinking in another, making eye contact and so forth, for Herval Hendricks and Imago Therapy, he believes the most salient factor is repeating back in your own words what your partner has said before you in any way respond or add new content of your own. So what that looks like is somebody says, you know, uh, I, I asked you to come to this event. You, I always come to your events. You never come to mine. <laughs> And when you were there, you just signaled impatience. You just wanted to leave. You were not talking to any of my friends. And this makes me feel like, you know, you don't want to, uh, you know, immerse yourself in this relationship as much as, as anybody would say this sentence. But you don't want to immerse yourself in this relationship as much as I'm hoping. Anyway, that's just some shit I just made up. So, okay. But anyway... You might want to rebut everything. You might want to make some kind of truth claims. That's not true. I go to, remember last Thursday, I even, <laughs> two years ago, I went to, you know, it was only five months ago that I expressed interest in, you know, something you were interested about. None of that will build any bond, repair any damage, or work through anything. Defensiveness never works. But if you mirror back and you say, okay, what I hear you're saying is that you felt that um, it's difficult for me to agree to do things that you want to do. And when I do, um, you feel that I'm not that engaged and that I'm signaling that I just want to leave. Is that true? You ask, is that true? Then if they get it, they might know that you're engaging in mirroring dialogue, but immediately you will downregulate their nervous system and you will make them less defensive and more open to your own experience and you will create a much more healing environment where any kind of mutuality and co-regulation is possible. So you want to do that. And you'll find at first it's awkward, but I've been practicing. We had to do these, by the way, I'm not talking out of my ass here. I'm not saying like do this, but I like, you know, but when I was in teacher training, and for me at the beginning, and for everyone, it was a miserable experience because we had to practice all of these tools when we would engage with the other teachers. If somebody said, you know, I feel that every time I say something to you, you have this dismissive look on your face, and every bone in your body would want to go, I don't have a this. I'm totally listening to your most ludicrous ideas. <laughs> and I'm listening, but I'm not, I don't think I'm doing that, but you'd have to go, thank you, what I hear you're saying is. <laughs> and that was like a huge part. And I mean, it was, there's more to the three plus years of training, uh, you know, it was extensive. But one of that was the way we would interact with each other. We'd have to enact all of these processes over and over. And then we'd have to enact all of these practices whenever we were teaching and interacting with people. And so it was something that was for me, extremely valuable tools that helped in, I think, deepen my relationships without any question. So we repeat back and we ask if what we've summarized their conversation is, uh, is accurate. Um, as Hendrick says uh, in Imago Therapy, mirror back what is being said without comment or distortion. Resist any tendency to explain or justify oneself or to solve problems. Like, I think what you need to do is, you know, pay attention to your own shit. Um, just repeat back in your own words what the other person has said. And he, the examples he gives are, I think you said, or um, is there more, or could you clarify? And just to constantly try to make the other human being feel that 
their verbal utterances have been heard and understood. This is essential in terms of conveying a safe environment where, and when people don't feel heard, it activates them and it creates more conflict. If you want to signal they've been heard, just repeat back something that they've said. It doesn't mean you agree. Repeating back doesn't mean you're, you're saying that they're right or that you agree with them. It's simply saying that you've heard them. But that's important because all human beings seek to be heard. Finally, the next thing is when it comes to, well, not finally, there's one more tool, but express the truth. Uh, feel in and convey what you're experiencing first hearing what your partner is saying rather than go into self-justification or revamp or rehashing previous events saying, okay, when I hear this, I feel kind of uh, confused or I, I do feel saddened that that's what your experience is or I do feel um, kind of a little upset because that's so not matching my own experience, but I've heard what you said. And then the next tool is to express what your core need is going forward. Your core need is not making truth claims about the past. It's not going over again and again some event where there's a difference of opinion. It's simply to focus on what do I need in the future to feel safe, heard, seen, appreciated, taken care of, or validated in this relationship. So couples that go over again and again, previous experience, trying to be the one who wins or has the correct uh, view of those events, do not heal anything and the damage becomes worse. Couples that instead focus on their core attachment needs, Sue Johnson's work in emotion-focused therapies, do bond. And it's interesting that in one of the lessons of the, the Winia, where the Buddha talks about how monks should engage when there's a conflict, he said in it, I remember you know, reading this, and um, he says something along the lines of, before a monk can respond to a, 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 a uh, attack or any form of criticism, they must be able to convey to the other monk that they understand the other monk's per point of view, what was being conveyed to them. And I, I know I gender that, but it stands for, for nuns as well. Um, lastly, before a meditation, going with the flow. That's uh, in the final Buddhist mindful communications, really important. Going with the flow is the wisdom of letting go of our agenda, what we think the conversation has to address, what the, the salient points we think that have to be covered, moving it in a direction that we think is important. It has to be a little bit like, and here, I, I hope you know what this is. You, I'm sure you know what a Ouija board is. A Ouija board is a, you know, where people pretend that they're not directing the thing and that it's gonna spell out some kind of words from some spiritual you know, entity. But really, conversations should be like that, where nobody is in control, nobody is steering the agenda. It's a healthy dyadic exchange with another human being is when we step back and where we don't try to force a point or force an agenda, where we open to the whatever shape and direction that the conversation is taking. So it conveys that we, in letting go of the agenda and just being open and seeing what the other person needs to convey and then how we respond and where does that take us, it signals that we don't believe that we are the one who knows the truth. And that's a valuable state to convey. So those are all the tools of mindful communication. It's about deactivating stress, stopping, putting aside the momentum. It's about listening without signaling contempt, criticism, defensiveness, or withdrawal. It's about being willing to mirror back the verbal content in a way that's not distorting and not judgmental, just being willing to say, okay, what I hear what you said is this, is that true? It's about feeling into our own experience and noting what has occurred, 
when we've heard those whatever is being said to us. And then it's about asking ourselves, what do I really need right now? What do I really need in this relationship to feel more connected and conveying that? So thank you for listening. And now we're actually in our practice going to put these tools into place so that we can uh, become a little bit more familiar with them. So find a really comfortable seated position. So just allow, when we talked about stop and settle, this is the part where we stop and settle. So we're going to spend the first part of the meditation doing just that. And what this means is just first, in any mindfulness practice, just bringing your attention within, which means reeling back in your awareness into your body Generally in our life, we tend to be uh, overly focused on external experiences and thought. So that's external sensations and cognition. And we tend to be deeply less aware of interoception, which means awareness of what's going on internally in a nonverbal way. So mindfulness is bringing attention within. And we're going to settle and come to a full stop in life by first shifting our autonomic state down. So take a nice full in-breath and squinch the muscles in the face. Tighten the forehead, the nose, the jaw, and then as you breathe out, slowly, just allow all those muscles to release. And muscles that have been clenched and then released actually use up much less oxygen, and it tends to deactivate what's called action potential. So you just want to release. And then... Another breath, lifting the shoulders up, if you like, rotating them back and then dropping the shoulders so that the arms fall away from the body and there's this, this uh, open vagal state where the vagal nerve <clears throat> is engaged. Also signaling the open chest signals through the insula to your amygdala that you're safe because if you were under threat, your shoulders would be tightly contracted in the front of your body. And then for the third breath, we're going to practice abdominal breathing. So you breathe in and you allow your belly to expand, bringing in the breath and then as you continue the breath the chest expands and then as you start the exhalation the chest releases and then the belly so in abdominal breathing the greatest expression of the breath is in the belly and the belly initiates by expanding and then handing off the energy to the chest and then in the exhalation the chest contracts and hands back the released energy to the belly. So everything starts and ends with the belly. And what we want to do is engage the exhalations, which again, self-soothe. Inhalation, focusing on your in-breath, just uh, activates, could, puts you into a mobilized alert stage, state I should say, long exhalations, deactivate, soften, release, soothe, settle, and for this practice we want to do this, we want to 
Have you settled as much as possible? So we also want to bring the mind to a, a state where we've stopped and settled. That's that uh, classic Buddhist phrase by Ayakema, nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to become. The state, as I always like to say, when you arrive on the first day of a vacation in a special place where you no longer have any desire to think about events of the past, where there's no longer any desire to fantasize about future events, there's a sense of complete immersion in the present moment, opening to the limitless possibilities of what could be experienced right here and now. And we use this as an opportunity to pay homage in a way to the body that's been keeping us alive for, oh, that's been sustaining consciousness by attending to the body and doing whatever we can to soothe and settle the body. So while we practice, we constantly survey sensations in the body and just notice with a kind of caring tenderness, how can I make this moment in time even more comfortable for my body? So just constantly note your attention is a warm, open beacon of care that just surveys and anytime you find any tension, maybe in your back or your neck muscles or muscles of the arm, constriction in the throat and so forth, just See if you can subtly adjust it, breathe into it, soften the muscles around that area, send a message of kindness. I care about my stress. I care about my tension. I care about how I feel. Being aware of the current experience, all the sensations present. And you can also, if it's helpful, be open to any sounds that arrive. So sounds, we don't want to analyze or visualize what's creating the sounds. Just let sounds arise and pass like a recording of a, an environment we're unfamiliar with and you're just listening, but you have no views or opinions about any sound. So whatever you hear, just welcome it. Having a mind that's open and spacious and larger than any of the events. 
So all the sensations and sounds are just just arising and passing. And if any of the word or image thoughts that arise catches your attention, the moment you realize you're disconnecting from your present and getting lost in thought, without any judgment or frustration, just acknowledge the thought, what it wants to tell you, and just make a solemn agreement with it that if you choose later on after the meditation, you'll return to it. And just bring your awareness back to the body again and again.
So at this point I'd invite you to bring to mind a difficult exchange that you've either had with someone or a possibly challenging conversation that you've been putting off with someone where you tackle or address or acknowledge any interpersonal events that have caused or just any rupture in a relationship. Just allow anything that any of those words suggest to come to mind. And at first invites you to visualize yourself in a setting where such a conversation either occurred or where it feasibly might occur in the future. And just visualize with as much detail as you can, being in direct proximity with someone who is expressing or conveying something that's challenging, something you might not want to hear. And while you conjure this image in your mind to practice maintaining ongoing mindfulness, which means while you're holding the image of this situation where there might be some kind of tension present, at the same time, scan down and just check the salient sensations of your body, of your chest, your throat, your face and your belly, and just make sure that they're settled, that your belly is soft, the chest is open, that the facial muscles are not contracted, that there's, you're maintaining a state of openness and calmness. And just allow in your mind while you do this, this image of this challenging visualization to be present. And you can even imagine what the person might be saying. Allow it to be as difficult as you want and just practice self-soothing while you hear something that you don't particularly want to hear. Just allowing the breath to remain long, belly soft. And then in your mind, you could even review how you would mirror back without any judgment, either what has been said to you in the past or what you could feasibly imagine someone who's angry or disappointed or frustrated or distant or rejecting. What would they say? And how could you repeat it back without any judgment? Next, just connect with whatever you would in the past have felt or in the future, what, you, what you're feeling now as you visualize this future conversation, how it would feel to hear, what would you experience? What are you feeling right now? Or what could you feasibly imagine feeling in this interaction and how would you convey that clearly and simply?
And finally, without making any fact claims or rehashing any previous experience, just ask yourself, what would I need to, what need would I need, need to express? What, what, what has been missing from this relationship that I could clearly convey to indicate to this person what I require to feel safe or a sense of confidence to move forward. What is the core need that's not being met? Is it a need for attention or more space? or a sense of being prioritized or for a sense of being understood? What is it that we need? So at this point, I'm going to ring the bell. And as you slowly open your eyes, try to maintain ongoing mindfulness, which simply means not allowing our thoughts and the sights of the room around us to completely push awareness of how you feel, what's going on in your body, your mood. To have a balanced mindful awareness, it means you check what's going on internally as well as externally as as well as paying attention to all the thoughts you have about your experience. So thank you for listening. I'm going to turn off the uh, recording.